0: From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health. From periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health, join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Perfectionism, anger, envy, worrying that you're not enough, even when it's a long weekend and you actually have the day off feeling inadequate as a mother, and feeling guilty when you do take time for self-care. Whether they're coming in for period problems, fertility issues, an autoimmune condition, menopause symptoms, or anything else, these are just a tiny drop in the bucket of the feelings I hear from the women I care for in my medical practice. And I know them all too well myself as a mother, wife, physician, and female human living in this world. Then add in the wellness world, And we're trying to be thin enough, healthy enough, blood sugar balanced enough, but not body shaming at all. Always trying to be better in some or many aspects of our lives. And in the process, we're all too often denying our needs for rest, play, and pleasure because we don't want to be selfish or appear to be selfish. It's exhausting to always have to do more, give more, and feel on some level we're still trying to be good enough. A few years ago, my guest today, writer and editor Elise Lonan, got tired of feeling that way. Steeped in a world where health perfectionism reigned, she said, enough is enough. Elise, who lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Rob, and their two sons, Max and Sam, is the host of Pulling the Thread, a podcast focused on pulling apart the stories we tell about who we are and then putting those threads back together. And she's the author of the fascinating newly released book on our best behavior, the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be good. The book weaves together history, memoir, and cultural criticism to explore the ways patriarchy lands in the bodies of women and embeds itself in our consciousness and what we then police in ourselves and each other. On our best behavior illuminates why we congratulate ourselves when we resist the donut in the office break room rather than eat it and enjoy it celebrate our restraint when we hold back from sending an angry email rather than expressing our true feelings, and feeling virtuous when we wake up at dawn to get a jump on the day or put others' needs ahead of our own and believe this makes us exemplary. Lonan explains that these impulses, often lauded as unselfish, distinctly feminine traits, are actually ingrained in us by a culture that reaps the benefits. She reveals how we've been programmed to obey the rules and how doing so qualifies us as good women, and how we unwittingly reinforce this internalized patriarchy for ourselves, each other, and the next generation. With awareness, she reminds us we can begin to recognize these patterns of self restriction, break the story, and move ourselves and each other toward freedom and balance. Elise, we've had two convos about my books on your show in the past, and it's such a pleasure to have you on my show to talk about your book, baby, who's just a week old as we're recording this. So, welcome and congratulations.
1: Thank you. I can't believe it. As you know, these books, it's a long incubation period. So it's wild that it's out in the world. All right. I want to start with something that I think most of my listeners
0: are going to relate to and which can affect us at any time in our lives, but seems to especially peak really big at hormonal phases, Mm. motherhood, menopause, probably puberty too. And so many smart, accomplished women are secretly, silently, chronically battling. And that's high-functioning anxiety, right? And when you're writing a book or you're releasing something or anyone who's listening, who's trying to do something big, and that something big could be raising your children, because that's big too. It can be anything we're doing. High-functioning anxiety is something that I think we don't talk enough about, and it's even rewarded in our culture. And but as I started reading your book and reading some articles that you've written about yourself and, and your process, it sounds like you've struggled with some anxiety mm-hmm. attacks in this, what I would call high-functioning anxiety. So can you talk about how that's affected or plagued you, how you recognized it for what it is and kind of maybe how it even contributed or shaped the content in your new book?
1: Yeah. I mean, this book is a direct result of my high-functioning anxiety. And I'm convinced that people listening will find themselves in this. So the book opens after a therapy session where I am sort of heads down feeling quite broken because starting in my 20s, I began to chronically hyperventilate and not in a breathing in a bag. That's what I thought hyperventilation was, sort of that frantic panting into a bag. but For me, chronic hyperventilation, I think for most people in this diagnosis, it is that you are over-breathing, mouth-breathing, whatever it may be, and your body is convinced that you don't have enough oxygen because your lungs are so saturated that you can't take a full, complete breath. And so you sort of breathe up and you hit a point, and then the only way that I can take a deep, full breath is by yawning. And I can't always achieve it in that way. And it's an exhausting anxiety disorder. The first time it happened to me, I was in my 20s and I went to the ER. I was so freaked out. You know, I thought I was dying. And they gave me Xanax and told me it was all in my head. And, you know, I, my dad, ironically, is a pulmonologist. And uh, my mom's a chronic hyperventilator and my aunt as well, but it had never been described to me. So I didn't recognize it in myself. And the thing about it is that I can do it for days, weeks, months. So I opened the book after a period of like, I'd probably been hyperventilating for a month or two. And it is so exhausting, Aviva. And what's so odd about it, at least for me, is that people, as they observe me, think of me as a very calm, sedate person. I don't get particularly excited or exercised I very much have myself under control and when I'm in a chronic hyperventilation phase I look sleepy Mm -hmm. and I am in fact tired I'm yawning and so it's sort of such a weird cognitive dissonance because inside you're like I'm dying I'm dying I'm dying and the world looks at you and thinks that you're narcoleptic more or less I've had throughout my career and just growing up in a medical family, access to so much information, so many healers, so many modalities. And I've tried everything to no avail. You know, cutting my caffeine. I am really careful about trying to avoid a cycle of stress plus sleep deprivation plus over-caffeination. And I'm really meticulous now about... Watching for that and making sure that in particular that I sleep so that I do not kick off a cycle of hyperventilation, but at that point in my life, I mean I had a full-time job I was traveling almost every week of a seven year old and a ten year old who were four and seven and at that point, I was ghostwriting books on the side, just like driving myself to exhaustion, but I didn't know any other way to be in the world. And that wasn't unusual for me. It's not like I was experiencing a sudden uptick in activity and was trying to recalibrate. I have always been a compulsive overachiever. In college, I realized, yes, I only needed four to five credits a semester, but that I got better grades when I took six credits a semester. And so that's what I did. I double majored. Like I recognized in myself that the way to achievement was overextending that high functioning anxiety that if I didn't have enough to do, I would just be lazy. So I've just driven myself, you know, like a racehorse for most of my life. And so the book really came because I had been in this chronic hyperventilation period. I was so exhausted and I just had this dawning revelation, had a lot of success in my life. I'm married, I have two kids, I'm high achieving, etc. And I feel terrible. And I can't live like this anymore. And whatever is chasing me, these ideas of like, you know, achieve more, be better, you're not good enough, you're not thin enough, you're not, you know, all of these things, you'll never be safe, you'll never be secure. This anxiety that was chasing me this not enoughness I call it hungry
0: ghosts. It came up to me with yeah. a patient one time who was in her sixties, grew up very poor, had spent her entire life, basically her entire childhood and teenage years saying, essentially, like fuck if I'm gonna be that poor when I grow up, and then drove herself and her per her like her life on the surface is phenomenal. And she knows that. But it's like she could never rest. She was always overfilling her time, overcommitting and exhausted and came to me ultimately for a thyroid problem. And she was sitting in front of me and I just, you know, I think you're still running away from hungry ghosts that you think are chasing you, but they're not actually chasing you anymore. I just watched her shoulders drop, <laughs> her face drop. And then I went home and I was like, wait a minute, Viva, you're doing that too. You're just at that time, 30 years younger and don't have the health problems. So what are you going to do about it?
1: Yes, I think we all are. I think that, and that was sort of this revelation of if I stop running, I turn and look at this and like, what are these hungry ghosts or voices in my head that I think are specific to me? And then I sort of had this like, wait, where is this actually coming from? Because it's certainly not coming from my husband as much as I'd like to just blame my parents for everything. I, I love my parents, but it's not coming from my parents. My parents sent me to hippie alternative schools with no grades. Like my parents did what they could to protect me from this. So what is it? What are these voices? And then that's when I sort of really started the process of trying to figure out what they were and to identify whatever it was that was telling me that I was not good enough. And the thing is like, the hungry ghost chasing your patient. It's the same hungry ghost that were chasing me. I think we're all, I mean, there, I'm sure there are some women will be like, I can relate to none of this. But I think for most of us, we're all plagued by these same voices that actually come from culture, toxic, ancient stories.
0: It's so true. And it's so interesting because when you talk about not blaming your parents, but looking for a source, I was talking with someone, who was interviewing me for her podcast? And she was talking about how she had struggled with eating disorders for most of her teenage years and into her 20s. And she's kind of in her 30s coming out the other end. And she was saying her mom was in the fashion industry and she really held her mom responsible for this. And her mom was always, you know, you should be thinner, putting her on diets, like buying her a size clothes too small, pushing her to kind of fit that. But then we were kind of unpacking this. And her mom really thought that she was helping her daughter to fit into a culture and into a size that that culture validates. And so I really have been reflecting on a lot of the things that we do tend to blame our mothers for and how our mothers were just trying in their own completely culturally programmed way to pass on things to us that they didn't know were also internalized patriarchy. And really. complex when we start to think about that. And I think take the blame off of our moms in some ways, not to say that some of us have moms with very severe struggles, mental health problems, and moms who just didn't do their best for us. But in general, you know, how do we look at culture rather than continuing to blame the woman, which is kind of what that's all about too.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's our instinct, understandably, to find something, someone outside of us that's responsible. And it could be our mothers, our fathers, Men in general, et cetera. And what I think we're starting to understand in recent times is one, how contagious culture is and how it's baked into our systems in ways that become highly invisible to us, but still exceptionally influential. And we know this with systemic racism, right? You don't have to be an active racist person to benefit or be harmed by systems that are in place, you don't have to build the system. You don't have to like the system. You don't have to subscribe to it. It's just present. And the same thing is true of patriarchy and internalized patriarchy, internalized misogyny. And you can say, you know, it's funny when I talk about the book, people are like, but I love women. I'm like, yeah, I love women, too. Doesn't mean that we aren't policing ourselves and policing each other in part out of trying to keep each other safe and secure and belonging and conforming. We're trying to keep ourselves safe
0: within a context where that is happening. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what being good means and why as women, especially as mothers, I think we equate self-denial with this concept of good as if good's even the goal. And I'm going to say good and self-denial. I'm going to say, like we can, Substitute the words like self care, self time, and mm-hmm. even self development when it's monetarily related to our family income, like going back to school or writing a book or advancing your career or building a business. So we deny ourselves these things as if they're not good. And yeah. interestingly, the data really does show that men don't experience that on every level, they're not in self denial. They're not taught to be in self denial. They're taught to be in power. We're taught to be in service. So, talk about this and what it means to you.
1: Yes. So, exactly that. Men are culturally conditioned for power, programmed for power. Women are culturally conditioned and programmed for goodness. There is nothing worse that you can say about a woman than that she's bad. Reputational damage for a woman around badness, unkindness, uncaring is the lowest blow. Selfish. And men, it's weakness. But we don't really care what they do. They can do anything. If they're powerful, we will still revere and venerate them. This is not biological. This is completely cultural. And this is how our society is structured and set up. So this is whispered into our ears. Pursue goodness at all costs, all costs to yourself, And part of that, of course, is subjugating everything that you want to other people's needs. It's to be in service to the world, not of the world. And this is in us so profoundly and so deeply. And it gets so wrapped up, as you know, in like what it is to be a good mother and how women are sort of biologically, uh, but also primarily, I would say culturally at this point, primed to be the only and sole caregiver, which is really not fair to same sex couples or to all the incredible fathers who are very they can't breastfeed no but they can certainly hold love and nurture a child so i think it's old it's as old as patriarchy and when you go sort of before patriarchy which was not an inevitable conclusion and you look at sort of affiliative partnership style cultures with allo parenting you're like of course this makes complete sense. People were doing life together. Women were foraging, men were foraging, women were also hunting. You know, we've all been sold a story about who we inherently are. That's like an inviolable. This is who you are as a woman, which is just not accurate or true or complete.
0: Well, and I think attachment parenting kind of Beats into that, no pun intended, when it comes to breastfeeding. I remember I was training as a midwife. The midwifery collective I was training in was Afrocentric. All the women who were training me were African-American women. Everyone had babies slung on their backs. And I was breastfeeding one of my babies. And I was at a birth. And my baby was uh, like 18 months, was with her dad. And my midwife had her little baby on her back at the birth and the baby needed to nurse and the midwife needed to do something so she just passed me the baby who's now in his 30s and we joke that I have nursed him <laughs> uh, but uh, she just passed me the baby So can you feed him and I was like of course I'm nursing her baby and this idea within attachment parenting which is so based on this nuclear model of, of mothering which yeah. is impossible but that we're supposed to be everything and do everything and nurse and carry and sleep with the babies. And yes, we do all that. But historically, we would have had breaks. We would have had a grandmother yeah. and auntie, a sister. And I totally bought into that as a mom in the 80s, hippie mom, doing everything to turn myself inside out to be 100% in that sort of attachment continuum concept model and always feeling like I was kind of failing at it. And it was really that I was doing something that wasn't meant for one human being to do. Mm-hmm. And for something where really there is no failure, but our cultural model of the good mom is such that we do give everything. It's like that giving tree book that drives me crazy. chopping yeah. the tree until there's nothing left. I'm like, that is almost the quintessential model of how we think a good mother should be.
1: We were never supposed to do this alone. It was supposed to be communal. It was supposed to be multi-generational. And able-bodied, able-minded people were supposed to work in whatever way, you know, foraging, growing, gardening, hunting, building, sewing. We're supposed to extend ourselves in lots of different ways. And that's one of the, the primary tricks of patriarchal living is putting people in these nuclear families with the man at the head and women in subservient service-based roles, essentially servants to everyone except for ourselves. And I think that we think that these things are so far in the distant past. And then when you start thinking about your life, this is true of me and I'm the primary red winner, but the instinct to be a good mother and to balance out anything that I do, quote unquote, outside of the home with what I do for my children is so intense, right? Like, that's also how we've now decided to achieve balance is, oh, I'm going to be on this book tour for a week. And instead of saying, okay, I'm going to be really depleted and exhausted because this is going to take all of my energy as an introvert to go and do this in the world the response is, well, I better come back and parent with equal fervor, right? Like I'm going to spend all day Saturday working. Well, I'm going to spend all day Sunday on my hands and knees with my kids. Making up for it, right? Making up for it. I
0: remember one year, you're reminding me of this time where a woman in my midwifery practice went into labor and she went into labor the night before my son's birthday. So at like 11 o'clock at night, I'm making a birthday cake. Mm -hmm. So that it would be ready in the morning if I were out instead of thinking, okay, my partner is a perfectly contributing, wonderful dad capable of making this cake. So why am I staying up till one so that it's baked and cooled and ready to be iced and making the icing, of course, also from scratch and homemade and organic, right? Because like, heaven forbid, I go get a box while I'm at a birth, midwifing a baby
1: Uh, or send someone for one.
0: And just these million little incidents yeah. where we give till depletion.
1: Yes. And it runs us. It's like, it's not, your husband is not saying, well, you can go to this birth, but you had better bake. No, he's, he's not saying that at all. It's, cake, it's, right? it's an internal it's, guilt and or it's, an internal mechanism. Yes. Mm-hmm. A thousand percent. It's just running us. So some of the women who, or people who see the
0: title on our best behavior which the title grabs, then they see the seven deadly sins and the price women pay to be good may think, okay, I'm not religious. So this probably won't be relevant to me, but you're not religious. I'm not religious. I definitely found the book relevant. Yeah. Tell me why the seven deadly sins is writ large in the book as the backbone of the content and how that came to be your focus.
1: Yeah. I mean, and to be Just to be completely candid, I had to look them up because I consider myself quite spiritual, but I was not raised in a religious household at all. But religion is culture. And you can say that you're not subscribed, but it is in us, right? It is baked into all of our systems and the way that we perceive ourselves. And so as I was contemplating this idea of goodness for women and what that looks like and how I police that in myself. And I was writing down sort of my list about body size and no need for rest and no wants or desires, no overt ambition, no need for recognition, not upset. And not not comparing, right? And not comparing. And I'm looking at this list and I'm like, you know, and this idea of wanting, which is so shameful in women. We do not want, we just service needs. I sort of had this like, revelation of oh my god i know this list and really started for me with envy which we can talk about in a second but like this list is ancient this is the seven deadly sins which i'm going to remind people of what they are they are sloth pride envy greed gluttony lust anger and so you know i was like okay i recognize how cultural religious tenets are Let me find the context for these in the Bible. And that's when I had another sort of aha, where I realized they're not in the Bible. They emerged out of the Egyptian desert in the fourth century, around the same time that the New Testament was being canonized. It was this Egyptian monk named Evagrius Ponticus, who's also credited as being an early father of the Enneagram, for anyone who's interested in that system. And he wrote them down as eight thoughts, eight demonic thoughts, but not demon in the way that we would think of it, but in sort of the etymological root of distraction, things that would distract monks from prayer. So he wrote them down in this little chapbook, and then it circulated in the desert for hundreds of years. And then 590, Pope Gregory I turned them into the cardinal vices. And assigned them all to Mary Magdalene, who is described in the New Testament as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons, which just so you know, that would make her like the most sanctified person in the Bible. He like cleared all of her chakras, whatever, however you want to think about it. She was, she was really the first apostle. Anyway, I won't bore you with it, but she's an amazing figure. In this homily, Pope Gregory assigns all the cardinal vices to Mary Magdalene conflates her with the woman who anoints Jesus's feet with her hair and turns that woman and thus Mary Magdalene into a penitent prostitute. And then she wore that reputation until 2016. Pope Francis turned her into the apostle to the apostles because she was the one who witnessed his resurrection. That's where it started.
0: Going back to what you were saying before, where we sort of assume certain things are just how they are they're either Mm -hmm. biological or just how the universe is women are the ones who have to nurture the babies and men somehow can't that's not their biological imperative or this idea of goodness is somehow inherent in women rather than being able to step back and say these are intentional constructs that were politically created to create an effect and then over time we have become acculturated to them to the point that we don't recognize that they came from somewhere intentional. We've internalized them and now we're living them out in these self-judgments.
1: And then, yeah, like I think because they come in this Trojan horse of religion, people are like, oh, it doesn't apply. And then religious people sort of hold, I've seen that as well, where they're holding them tightly. And I'm like, guys, these were just made up by a man. This isn't gospel this is a cultural list.
0: Let's break it down because the way you do it in the book is really fascinating and so relatable. I've written about good girl complex before about the helper versus feeling like we have to be a martyr, perfectionism. These are themes that I have really spent time paying attention to in my life and the way you articulate them in the book is fascinating. So for example, I think a lot of listeners pretty much all the women I know personally would relate to. When we say the word sloth, it sounds like such an outdated word, but when you break it down is that feeling we get that when we're doing nothing, we should be doing something. Or even when we're doing something, we should be doing something more, better, or different. So can we walk through, let's say sloth, because I think that one's so common, maybe envy. As women, we tend to allow ourselves to do things if we need it, if our family member needs it, Maybe if we deserve it, if we've earned it, right, like we'll reward ourselves, but not just because we want to. So maybe we can talk about those two.
1: Yeah. So yes, sloth is such a funny word, but essentially, I mean, you could think of it as laziness, but I think that the way that it's internalized by women goes to much of what we've already talked about, which is we don't deserve rest. There's always something that we should or could be doing. I feel like there's a cattle prod on my butt at all times, sort of chastising me for not doing more. You know, I write about not watching more than 20 minutes, maybe, of a movie in a decade because I will make myself get up and go and get something done.
0: I have done that during yoga. I, like yeah. do yoga at home on video. And I have gotten like 15 minutes into yoga. Let's say it's a Monday morning when I most need to be doing it. And like 15 minutes in my list will start getting generated in my head. And then the word should, the word should, yeah. I start shooting on myself and I have had times in the past. I don't let myself do this ever anymore where I have actually shut the yoga to just go do something.
1: Yeah. My husband is not plagued by this at, at all. Mine either. And, you know, thank God that we're starting to understand sort of the value of sleep, because otherwise I fear for us even more. But this idea of I cannot be, I just have to do is so pernicious for so many women, and it only gets more extreme with the addition of children. So that's sloth. I think it's probably the most relatable sin and the most relatable chapter Envy is fascinating to me because I think it is the one that we need to address culturally and collectively most acutely and really help each other start to identify and diagnose our envy because I think that it's the foundation of so much of our women on women hate and the way that we tend to take each other down with comments like, I just don't like her, She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is, et cetera. We all have had those feelings of discomfort that we then project onto the person because we don't have any modeling or mechanism for identifying what is envy, which is really showing us what we want. So when we have sort of an irrational reaction to a fellow mom and it's like, I don't like her, you know, she bugs me. It's because she's doing something that you want for yourself. It might be that she has an incredible career doing something that's very aligned with how you see yourself. It could be that she is really forthright and clear. It could be any sort of quality. It's not that you just want everything that she has, but there's something she's pushing on a dream that you have for yourself.
0: It's almost like we're conflating the words envy and admire but we're unable to just admit that we admire or aspire.
1: And there's so much scarcity in our culture, which is completely understandable. We have one woman in the boardroom. We have never had a female president, et cetera. We see it everywhere. So it also conditions us to believe, like if she has that thing, then I can't have it too. So rather than seeing each other's achievements as models for what's possible for us, we see it instead as scarcity and restriction. And this is, I just want to be clear, so subconscious. This is not malicious. We don't know why we're doing this, but I'm convinced that we are, that the person who is receiving your ire, probably behind her back, is just full of information. It's your soul knocking, saying, pay attention to this woman. For me, it's more like, what can't I have, or what's wrong with me, or why can't I achieve
0: that? Yeah. But it would definitely spur a kind of, tension, feeling there's a word called schadenfreude which yeah. is the almost taking delight when something less than positive happens to someone else and so i started doing this practice where anytime i identified somebody who was doing something that caused me to feel those pangs of envy i would intentionally go on facebook and honor what they were doing and it was a big shift for me to start to recognize oh I'm feeling this way because that is something I aspire to. And so it's triggering something in me that is exactly what you're saying. Like, oh, if that person's achieved it, they've taken up all the resources and now I can't.
1: Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. So for me, it would be another woman writing a book in the vein. And like, historically, it might be my instinct to be like, it's not a very good book and like, pick it apart and, you know, discuss all the reasons why she got attention for it, etc. I think anyone who's listening can recognize that that tendency in whatever area it is. And now it's like, Oh, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to study her. How did she do this? I'm going to buy her book, I'm going to celebrate her. Et cetera. This is the thing about all of these bad feelings that we suppress when you actually let them come up and diagnose them and feel them. You're like, wow, I'm fine. This does not kill me. It actually feels good. And you brought up Schadenfreude, which is joy plus harm. And that's really what pride is about. So the chapter on pride is about how scared, understandably, so many of us are to be seen and celebrated for our gifts. And yet, That's a very essential human impulse. More than any other time, we need all people bringing their gifts to bear. And we're all, we all have different gifts. That's the other thing. When you start to think about it, you're like, oh, what what Aviva wants is very different than what I want. And she is very differently equipped than I am. And you can start to see it once people start to show it. But culturally, we do not like this quality in women. and everyone can sort of recognize the typical trajectory of any woman who is seen and celebrated on a big scale primarily famous women we celebrate them we love them they sort of reach a certain point in the culture where it's like oh no 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 this is too much too much and then we tear them down or we're not actively tearing down we're sort of getting that little shot in hit of like this is fun to watch And then we like to celebrate them posthumously or once they've really been humbled. You know, you can think about tons of women in our culture. Billie Holiday, Princess Diana, Amy Winehouse, Britney Spears, etc. And we can say as sort of civilians, like this has nothing to do with us. These are celebrities or famous people or they've asked for it in some ways. But this is the playbook. Again, the contagion of culture. Our girl's. And other women are like, this is what happens. Why would I ever, ever want to publicly share my gifts with the world? The programming is stay inside, stay invisible, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, be humble, do not be a tall poppy. You will get your poppy head cut off, be seen in the turn. Yeah, this is so insidious. So, so insidious. And men are not concerned at all. We do not do the same thing to men.
0: You've used the term policing yourself and how as women we police ourselves. And I think call out and cancel culture has also made that part of pride even worse. It's made people really afraid to bring their gifts to the world in many ways.
1: Because reputational damage for women, saying someone's bad, toxic, racist, all of these things is the worst thing that you can say about a woman. And I'm not condoning racism, I'm just saying, like, just even saying it is enough to sort of bring a woman down. And part of it is this lack of durability, which, again, is part of our culture for women around any threat to that. Instead of saying, "Okay, like, I need to learn. I am not perfect. We don't have many models of women who have said, I'm not going anywhere, I'm going to try to do better and be better. And I need to learn. We don't really see that. You just see women sort of exiting stage right, moving upstate, disappearing themselves. Whereas men, it's like they can be convicted of a crime and they're not going anywhere. Uh, And be president. And be president. It's wild. The standards for women and men are so different. And then we sort of fall back on this, like, but I just expect more from women. It's like, really? because. The people with power and the ability to sort of ruin things for everyone are men. Maybe we should expect more of men. But it's interesting how the responsibility is attached to morality for women. lust and the way that women and girls are set up as the babysitters to rapacious male desire, you know, that whatever happens to us is our fault for not keeping ourselves safe that our bodies can be weaponized against us. And yet that's on us. This is so pronounced and pernicious. And again, like kind of invisible and yet so known the way that, you know, men can't be trusted. Their appetites are out of control. Boys will be boys. What was she wearing? What is yes. she drinking?
0: That was the first thought that came to my mind when you said that is that the what was she wearing question or somehow she was asking for it, which then means... We're really judging women by how we dress.
1: Oh, yeah. Still, like the onus is on us to to keep ourselves safe. It's wild. And, you know, of a thousand reports of sexual assault, only 25 go to trial. That is stunning. There is no evidence that women lie. It is humiliating to admit that you've been sexually assaulted. It is deeply shameful. You have to expose your inner life to outer opinion. There is no incentive. Plus, keep in mind that then women are told like, oh, but you're going to ruin his future prospects. Like, do you really think that that's an appropriate penalty yeah. because he made you uncomfortable? I mean, it's it's wild. And we yeah. know this. And yet we also participate in a culture of, yeah, You know, but that was dumb. Like, why'd she get in that Uber? You know? Mm -hmm.
0: Yep. So, recently, a dear friend of mine who is a dedicated, supportive, loving mom, all the things she texted me and she just kind of quickly bemoaned that one of her kids was home from college for a while and she was so ready for him to start his own life and not back at home. Mm -hmm. And then within seconds, she sent me another text and it was almost as if she was censoring herself, kind of to herself and also to me. But then also kind of asking for validation. And she just, the text just said, Am I a bad mom for feeling that way? And of course, I reassured her it's completely natural. And there's no bad way of feeling as a mom. We have a lot of feelings as a mom. And in a recent piece in the New York Times, you talk about how it's really profoundly important that we acknowledge this reality of maternal ambivalence. And you said, You can love your kids deeply and hate being a mom. And I wonder how. Your work, your book, your own experiences are informing your experience as a mom right now so that you're able to mother in the ways that you do want to without being in this chronic judgment of yourself or fakeness that I think yeah. so many moms feel obligated, especially if you're like have a social media presence or a platform to be this mom
1: with this ever ready smile and how much we love it. Yeah, yeah.
0: judge, right? We get judged if we say we hate being a
1: mom. Yeah. And particularly with social media now. I mean, there was already sort of this ritual performance of mothering. And now it's just taken onto a new stage in terms of how we're expected to express this and share this with the world. At least for me, before I wrote the book, it wasn't clear to me. This wasn't the way that we've taken the identity of mothering and loving your child and Conflated and conjoined them. Whereas we don't do that to men. We're not talking about, like, are you a good father? A good father is someone who's sort of present and teaches their kids how to play soccer in sort of the American mythology, at least. It's a very different identity, and there's no expectation that men will love it. We expect parents to love their children. That's a fair and reasonable expectation that, that like, sign me up. I love my kids to the bone.
0: And to keep them safe, right? But yes. so, what you're saying, and I, I really hear this and, and totally experience this myself, you can love your kids. That doesn't mean you always love the role of motherhood. And the role of motherhood in our culture is also really intense and complicated. And whether yes. you're fully at home, whether you're working outside the home, and then coming home and mothering, how can we have a more honest conversation about this? And how can moms? integrate all their feelings, do you think?
1: Yeah. And I write about this a fair amount and in, in envy because I think that there's so much that we pass on, particularly from mothers to daughters, around what it looks like to sort of usurp your mom's ambition or to do things differently in a culture that insists that the crowning achievement is to have children and be a, a wonderful mother. And I think it's essential, not only sort of, To emotionally liberate women who feel deviant when they're sort of like, you know, having those like muttering under their breath moments as they're like slapping together sandwiches in the morning, but also to air it out so that we're not passing this on to our children. My mom is incredibly intelligent. It came of age at that time during second wave feminism where some of her friends became, you know, high powered attorneys and judges, and many of them didn't work outside of the home. So it was sort of this like turning point culturally, like a real divide. And my mom did so much outside of the home. She was on the board of Planned Parenthood, on the school board. She ran my dad's office. She ran the school that I went to, all unpaid, but she never had a career. And so I knew how devastating that was to her I knew how much she envied me the opportunities that she gave me which were really the opportunities that she wanted also for herself and in a way it made it I think possible for me to write a book like I did and to be liberated from her anger frustration rage and to recognize that it wasn't that's not about me That's about sort of where she was, but it doesn't have to do with like her love for me. Sometimes that's the grace of maturity
0: and having our own children, isn't it? That we can see our mothers with a more gracious lens. Totally.
1: But I think for women who couldn't voice that, and so we're like, I hate being a mother. I love my kids, but I hate being a mother. And they don't speak it because they can't admit it. it. Feels too bad. What that's passed down to, that ambivalence, kids know. They know. And so I think what happens then is that you internalize that anger and rage and feel like you're its cause.
0: Yeah, because you don't know it's not about you. You're just immersed in the emotion and the feeling and then you internalize these feelings. Yeah. What are you wrong?
1: Yeah. So yeah, I write about sort of being my mom's jailer and her joy and how difficult that is, I think, for all of us, particularly in a culture where we don't talk about it. It's so important,
0: I feel, to talk honestly about how we really feel about the motherhood experience in this society without feeling like or fearing we're going to be judged by other mothers, without fearing that we're somehow saying we don't love our kids, and also really recognizing the context in which we're mothering, which has so much of an influence on how we experience mothering, right? Not having paid leave, not having support, living far from our families, socioeconomic struggles so many folks experience. It's really hard to be a mother right now.
1: And it pits women against each other. It's like that amazing Angela Davis quote, which I'm going to sort of try not to butcher here, where she's like, childcare should be communal and housework should be institutionalized. It's all such a complicated stew for women.
0: Well, I think there's also like a motherhood in our culture It's either or, right? It's all or nothing in the sense that culturally we're expected to give all to our children. And if we have ambition to work outside the home or have to work outside them, which is the case for most
1: women. Yeah. Since the seventies. Yes.
0: We're judged either way. You know, It's funny. I was doing my pre-meds and have a dear friend who asked how I was doing and said, I'm tired. I've got four kids. I'm doing my pre-meds. And her response shocked me. She said, well, if you just focus on your kids and you weren't doing the pre-meds, you might not be so tired. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like totally shifted my friendship, first of all. I was like, we are so not on the same page. Ironically, she went and got her nursing degree a few years later, but I was the primary income provider for my family. There were intergenerational and very real economic reasons that I was pursuing a next level of my career. This wasn't just some privileged thing I was doing. Even if I was, That should be fine. Yeah. But the judgment from another mother was really like a punch in the solar plexus to me. Like, okay, well, maybe that is why I'm tired. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. The second guessing I started going through around this and the lack of cultural support. So nobody would have ever said to my husband, if he was the one in medical school and I was home with the four kids, like, oh, I bet you could never have done this without your wife. But people would say that to me, like, oh, you could never have done this without your husband. I'm like, wait a
1: minute. No, but it's interesting what your friend too said was clearly coming out of her own envy. As you just said, then she went on and more or less like did the, the same, same thing. thing. It's just a good example of what we were talking about earlier of how what it looks like to actually diagnose that rather than judge it or project it onto you where she was clearly holding that against herself. Like I should be doing that too.
0: You made a statement in a recent Vanity Fair interview that I loved and it said, let's come into balance with all of these very human impulses that actually bring us closer to ourselves, show us who we are, help us identify our needs, our wants, and can be the source of pleasure and joy. To me, that statement summed up the book so beautifully. And I wonder, is this kind of a a takeaway you hope for people who read the book?
1: Yeah, my hope is balance. So a lot of people will see sort of like, the books about the sins, and they sort of immediately go to like, we don't need more, you know, greed. Uh, And I'm like, calm down. This is about enoughness, security. This isn't a bid to say like, let's just be lustful, envious, gluttonous. It is about actually finding some place in the middle. It's not saying like, we're never going to do anything. It's saying it's okay if you just need a bed day. And you're going to be in bed with a book or not a book and just rest and relax and restore.
0: It's also okay if you want to create a hundred million dollar, billion dollar company and you're a mom and you still also want to do that. And you do want to work really intensely. Like that's okay
1: too. That's okay too. Both sides. Yes. All of it. It's all okay. It is all good. That you can go out for dinner with friends and be oh slightly overserved and overeat and you're not going to spend the next day chastising yourself and talking about how bad you are and how good you now need to be. It's just starting to release ourselves from all of this programming, where we have each, ourselves and each other in such tight leashes. It's like we treat each other and ourselves like we're convicts, and that any of this badness comes out. All is lost. We're going to be run away with our appetites and our desires and our wants. And meanwhile, it's like the amount of energy that we spend suppressing and repressing all of these very human instincts, the way that we connect with the world and with each other, the way that we serve the world with our gifts and enjoy the world with our appetite. It's like we're not living you know, we're missing the whole thing in some ways by just like trying to keep ourselves under control. I feel like the book is just essentially about giving ourselves permission to actually
0: feel what we feel, to identify what we feel, and then find ways that are helpful for us to express our true nature.
1: Yeah. My hope with the book is that this is the list we know or have heard But that it will be so clarifying that people will be able to immediately identify oh, this is me like harassing myself about sloth, or this is me around like my inability to let my anger come up. That we can start to see the system and then override it with a voice that's ours, that's true, and that's not coming from some exterior authority, but is actually who we are.
0: What are three concrete ways? you've started
1: to break some of the patterns that you talk about in the book for yourself. Self-inquiry. So just examining whatever it is that I feel coming up in me and asking what it is and where it comes from has been so eye-opening. And, and then stopping myself again from projecting it. Like a good example recently was, uh, I was in New York for an event the week before my book launch. I flew home, took a 10.30 p.m. flight from New York back to L.A. on Thursday because I had a Friday morning parent-teacher conference that I could have totally Zoomed into. And then I flew back to New York first thing Sunday morning. So I was home for like two days. Terrible for <laughs> the environment. And um, I sort of had this moment of frustration where I was like, oh, you know, this is ridiculous. And then I was like, but why am I doing this? and I maybe before would have expressed some of my frustration at my husband, even though he was like, why are you doing this? And do we even both need to go? And it's like those moments of interrupting myself to be like, where is this coming from? What's at play? And is this really the right choice? And then taking responsibility for like where I feel I'm putting it on myself versus, you know being mad for some reason at my husband. And I do that a lot. I do that with food now, where it's like, oh, I actually do want pizza and I'm gonna enjoy this pizza pizza. And now I want another piece and I'm gonna enjoy this this pizza pizza. Instead of eating the pizza, shaming myself with every bite, and then either doing something about it, quote unquote, or not. And then just I'm really so still so bad at rest, but building in things that I find so pleasurable. Like I pulled out a puzzle yesterday and that it pulls me away. It's like, I love puzzles. I just love it. It's such an
0: interesting thing that we really didn't talk about, but I'm sure you are well aware of. And just worth saying that some of the ways that we're driven by culture to be constantly productive and then not letting ourselves rest are actually counterproductive to productivity. So doing the puzzle and we don't have to do the puzzle so that we can relax so that we have the eureka moment and become more productive. I'm not suggesting that, but that is often the result too. We enjoy the the zone, we get into flow and then what we were struggling with or we're stuck on actually becomes easier.
1: A thousand percent, a thousand percent. And I am pretty good about that. Like with any creative process, if I'm not feeling it, if it's not coming, I don't make myself right. I wait. It is like being pregnant and then you wait and then you're like, oh, it's coming. I'm, I need to like get to my keyboard. Letting your conscious brain relax is a boon for work. Again, not making it something to do. So you've written
0: really powerfully and in the last couple of years about the dark sides of the wellness world, which mm-hmm. you were deeply immersed in for many years for your work. And you've written about how health and well being are increasingly commodified and commercialized, so that we're left with this long checklist of more and more things to do and to measure ourselves by. Now, I want to be really clear that I am not wanting to knock the wellness movement partly as a physician and a midwife and an herbalist. I see the dark sides, the shadow sides of wellness. Also, I also want to acknowledge that they have arisen in a vacuum of where Western medicine is not meeting women's needs at all. I don't want to talk so much about that. But what I really want to hear about from you is the intersection of things like cleanses that I see personally as these modern day internalizations of outdated puritanical, religious and patriarchal myths that were actually, if you go back in history, you can easily track the thread from today's cleanses to the 1970s detoxes and and the 80s and 90s colonics all through. And you go back to these threads of women's bodies being dirty, sexuality being dirty. So how does this current wellness movement fit into this construct that you've written about in the book?
1: Yeah. Well, I write about it a fair amount in Gluttony, but yeah, that's, it's really interesting to think about sort of the way that it's connected to the perception of dirtiness of women. I think it's also, we see the world as so broken and uncertain and out of control and toxic. And so we're trying to sort of clean it in ourselves. It's like this, like understandable but misplaced sort of like, I can't save the world and I can't keep the world safe. So I'm just going to try and like work it all out in my own body as some sort of bulwark to the chaos and uncertainty out there.
0: And to some extent, I mean, we're kind of being asked to do that, right? right. We have a, a, an out-of-control, dysregulation, deregulation of the EPA. And yes. we do have rampant environmental toxins that, in order to avoid we do have to be mindful of the foods we're eating and the products we're putting on our skin. And then there's this interface of that to me, which is very real as an environmental scientist and physician. And this rampant perfectionism that we have internalized, the sloth mindset that we're always trying to fight against, which is I'm not doing enough. I'm not clean enough. I'm not thin enough. Enough, 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 enough.
1: Yes. And I think too, what's also happened is that sort of wellness and the rise of wellness as an antidote to Western medicine, which is wonderful and problematic. And this emergence of women's intuition and this feeling of like, I know something's wrong. I need someone to pay attention to this, right? This is all very familiar to you, clearly. But this antidote to quote unquote hysteria of actually no, something's wrong. Yes. And so in that sense, like it's such a stunning and important movement. And I think it's done a lot. We still have so far to go, but of moving Western medicine forward. I think what's also happened is like it's been taken over by patriarchy and capitalism and bro wellness and longevity hackers and anti-aging. And then it sort of spun as like, well, it's about increasing your healthy lifespans. Like, okay sure, I can get on board with that. But the whole longevity movement, I'm like, you guys, we're not living to like 120. It's not happening. Also, I'm like, Live the life you have. Why are we? Why are you spending your whole life trying to extend your life when you're clearly not enjoying your life right now? Like you, you're spending your whole life obsessed with not dying, yeah. which to me doesn't sound like living. You're treating your body like a machine. Like exactly. you're overriding all of your own natural intelligence, your body's ability to create homeostasis. Like that is what the body does. And it's not to say that it's not overtaxed by the environment, by stress, by our woefully out-of-date food system that was engineered for famine and against nutrient deficient diseases in like the 40s that desperately needs a revamp, but you're not a machine and everything doesn't need to be dialed. It's like the masculine in a toxic way coming in and just taking over something that's quite Beautiful, and then hijacking something and turning it into something that was never intended to be. We're women. We need to let our intuition come up and like let ourselves emerge, right? As like the primary healing principle. And now it's like, no, up and to the right, up and to the right, up and to the right. It's totally (laughs) batshit.
0: I think you and I both know this as insiders. A lot of these stories are made up to create brands and marketing and selling machines. I have a question for you that I love to ask each of my guests. If you could tell your younger self anything, how old would she be and what would you say?
1: Mm, It's a great question. It's hard to answer because I'm so grateful for all of my experiences. So in some ways, I don't want to circumvent my journey by giving myself um, advanced warning.
0: I love that answer.
1: You do? I actually okay.
0: love that answer. Nobody <laughs> has ever said that. It's like, okay, you're not burying a time capsule here.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not burying time capsule. I think I've had the experiences I needed to have at that time, some hard ones, but I do feel like it's divinely guided in some way and I'm where I'm supposed to be.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of your process and certainly what you convey in the book is about deepening self-awareness, deepening awareness that some of the things that we put on ourselves or or most of the things we put on ourselves are really cultural context, not ours, or to blame someone else who's often someone who loves us. And that some of this is also about dropping into our bodies, dropping into our feelings so that we can be honest with ourselves and act from that place. It's a beautiful book. It's been my bedtime companion many nights recently, and I thank you for writing it, for shedding light on how we can be more honest with ourselves, live more full, rich, less judgmental of each other and of ourselves' lives, and for joining me
1: on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Always. And everyone
0: in the show notes, you can find out all the places to get Elise's book, learn more about Elise, follow her dial into her phenomenal podcast, pulling the thread and all the things. Thank you everyone for joining us. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode that it helped you to feel seen and heard and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram, at doctor.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.